Peter Wall. And I'm Jennifer Carnegie. Welcome to the Amicus Leadership Podcast. On each episode, we'll be speaking to inspiring leaders about the ups and downs of their careers. As well as doing what we do best, using our years of leadership experience in both the military and commercial business to get leaders to the top of their game. You can listen to each new podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. So subscribe now to make sure you don't miss any of our conversations. Okay, let's get going. So welcome to this Amicus Leadership Podcast. And today we have Paul Ford, who uh, represents ASIN, a company he set up himself. Um, He's a serial entrepreneur. He's had a significant career in leadership, uh, starting in the British Army and then moving into the financial services sector and various other um, bits of work before he's ended up in his current uh, location in London uh, with a very exciting brand new fintech company, which is going to take the uh, financial services world by storm, we hope. Paul, welcome. So how's it going at ASIN? Yeah, it's been busy. So we've had a very busy summer. We just uh, we just raised some money. Uh, we did a Series A with uh, Notion Capital leading, uh, Fitch, the ratings agency, co-leading, and uh, Talis Capital participating. So it's been an exciting summer, lots to do. Uh, and now we've got to invest that money wisely. And, you know, a lot of people involved in your business, as well as the technology, how are you handling them? Well, it's a, it's an interesting um, shift that we've just been through. We had 20 people two months ago. We've now got 42 people. So we have more than doubled the size of the firm. We've shifted from an experience set that had mostly banking and asset management experience to, to now mostly technology, data, uh, and so on. And, uh, and and we're going to keep growing. So there's some really interesting gear shifts along the way. And so where's the uh, where's the sort of ceiling in terms of people? Do you think? Well, I think I think we we'll add another ten people over the next few months, um, uh, and and that's that takes us really up to our financial year end at the end of March. But we would expect then to double again over the over the following year. So it's a it's a it's a continuous process. So, Paul, what does um, ASIN do and what does the word ASIN mean? So the, the word ASIN means Advanced Control Identification Number, which is uh, one of the, the key elements of our, of our software platform. So if you think of it like a, a barcode for a retail product, uh, our barcode is effectively for uh, an operational risk within a financial services organization. So operational risk is uh, is what can go wrong in an organization related to people, systems, processes, uh, and so on, whether that's deliberately or accidentally. So you've all heard the uh, the examples of the rogue traders, the Cavils and, and others that, that did things wrong deliberately. But you also have heard of the trader that fat fingers a trade and doesn't do it correctly uh, or a system that goes down. So what our platform does is it helps banks to better uh, and analyze their risks and put the mitigating uh, controls and procedures in place. And the and the leadership dimension of this, because that's ultimately what Amicus is about, and, you know, we've done a bit of work with you before, so we know how seriously you take it. Is that going well? 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely we're in leadership mode um, in in getting through the fundraising and kind of driving forward, setting the um, the kind of medium and and short term objectives, and and getting a lot of things mobilised in in one place. Um, it definitely feels to me like you know much more leadership than management at the moment. Although I think we're you know we're working out how we catch up on the management. Um, pieces of it and putting processes in um, so that we don't create too much uh, management debt along the way. So, you know, one of the interesting things about being in the military was that um, we didn't really have to worry about the money. Someone else did that. Yeah. Um, We had to get resources. We had to do logistics. We had to get the bits and pieces to the right place to get on and do the job. And some of that was massive, you know, moving tens of thousands of people and machines all over the world and so on. but, you know, we were very much more involved in the people bit than we were trying to generate cash. Do you see, do you, how do you see that when, you're, when, you're, when you've got a lot of people who depend on your success at fundraising, when you're going to the very market that your product is going to be serving uh, if the business gets going and works, which we sincerely hope it is, um, are the tensions between those two roles? Um, it's interesting because we've shifted from – before we raised capital, there was a lot of tension in it because we were we were operating in a bootstrap mode. So you're kind of hand to mouth. So you, uh, you you know what you want to do, but you're really constrained by the money, and you're and you're making suboptimal decisions around people, around around direction because you're constrained by that by that money piece. As we've raised capital now, what we've got is is a short term relief from that in that we can invest in doing the right things with the people, building the structures. Of course, that that catches up with you in terms of, you know, we have to deliver a return. Uh, we have to deliver on our objectives. But now I see, I see money as a resource in the same way in the military. You've got finite resources, whether it's fuel or people or bridging equipment or vehicles or whatever that is. Um, we... It, and our and our objectives over the over the coming years um, are really money is a is a measure of that, but it's really about capability and what you're achieving as you build as we build this business. So you've gone from a sort of economy of effort situation to the land of plenty, but as as ever with the land of plenty, you've got to at some point account for what you've done with it and generate the return. Yeah, and, um, and the land of plenty comes with a you know with a high bar in terms of what you need to achieve. So it's uh, you know on the one hand life gets easier, on the other hand life gets harder because you need to achieve more. So in the interests of full disclosure, Paul, you and I know one another from the Royal Engineers back in the day. We served together in the same regiment. We all went off to Bosnia in uh, in the kind of mid nineties, in the middle of the uh, the sort of aftermath of the of the Bosnian civil war. And, you know, I remember you then with, you know, trying to lead your soldiers with great gusto. And what it is, what is it about you that makes you want to keep on taking bigger challenges, new challenges, more risk um, as you get older? Well, I think it's, um, I think it's grounded in, in how I grew up. So my um, parents uh, were, or my father was an entrepreneur. So he came from a a family that had had their own businesses, you know, at a reasonably small scale in the, mostly in the kind of leisure business. And so as I grew up, that's what I, that's what I saw. 
I um, I saw you know, individuals in our family who were striving to um, to build things, to do things, to kind of cope when things went wrong. Um, I was the first person in our family to go to to go to university, and actually, I think I think that's kind of where a lot of the the drive and the um, the kind of the the desire to to keep doing things comes from. So, Paul, I'm I'm interested in kind of the journey that you've taken since. So, you were at Bath University. You you followed your granddad's steps into the the military to be an officer in the British Army, and as Peter said, in the in the Royal Engineers. And then you came out into Civvy Street. Can you take us from there in terms of what your your working career has looked like? Yeah. So, um, so as I as I left the military, um, and so remember, this was in a time when. There was no real internet or email. You know, you kind of applied for jobs. You saw adverts and you did all those things. And I, um, I applied for a job at what's now Accenture. It was Anderson Consulting, and I, uh, I wasn't quite sure, you know, what the job was. But I ended up in this interview, and and after about fifteen minutes, um, realised that this this wasn't for me. And so I said to the recruiter, uh, the internal recruiter, I said, look, you know, it's very nice to meet you, but this isn't for me. And uh, I don't think anyone had ever done that to her before. And so she then spent the next 45 minutes persuading me why uh, I should, this was an internal role at Anderson's, why I should join Anderson's as a consultant, which I didn't know anything about. So I um, I thought, well, this sounds interesting. It sounds very similar to what I was doing. You you know, you've kind of got a you've got a series of problems that you've got to solve, and you need to go and figure out how to do that. And so, I uh, I was in this great position that before I'd left the military, I had this job at, at Anderson Consulting, and uh, and so I I went and I did that, and it was very good for me, but I hated it. It was very much more rigid and structured than the military ever is. Why is it that people all think that the military is very rigid and authoritarian when actually it can be a bit of a playground if you get in the right place at the right time? Yeah, I think it's the I think it's the 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 hierarchy or the perceived hierarchy. There's a rank structure. It's clear you can look at it on the internet from you know sapper or private up to up to general, and people think that there's a sort of a you know a sapper only talks to a lance corporal and he talks to a corporal and so on and and nothing could be further from the truth in reality when uh, when when you're on an operational tour it's 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 much more devolved it's much more chaotic than than anyone would would imagine um and yet some um some corporate cultures are like that and um and, and i found my experience at anderson's very it was very it was very good for me i learned a lot and it was a brilliant segue um but it was it, it definitely was more rigid um than i than i'd anticipated and and i also wasn't a very good individual practitioner i i kind of had to go back to basics and learn things i wasn't really leading anyone you started to do a bit of management and and I, you know, I've realised that I'm I'm not a very good individual practitioner. I'm actually not a very good manager, um, but I'm a pretty decent leader. So when you you came out of the military, you went into Arthur Anderson, and um, or sorry, you went into Anderson Consulting, and then you moved into you got into the world of banking and Credit Suisse and, and Barclays. How was that? Yeah. So I, I when I was at Anderson Consulting, I. I was very fortunate that the projects that I worked on, the clients I worked for, were banking ones. There was no great plan in that. It was a it was an accident. Um, and then I went to work for um, for one of the clients, which was Credit Suisse. 
And, and really, that's when I kind of made the shift into uh, project management, which I thought was a great outlet for you know leadership. You can, I think, project managers can come in two form. You can be a manager. You can be a um, a technocrat, someone who is um, very competent but doesn't take any kind of risk, if you like, any personal risk. Or you can be the type of project manager that's a project leader. You take some personal risk. You have a point of view. Um, and it's not all about syndicating that risk to um, to others via the means of process. That is such a good point. That is such a good point, that project management and project leadership are distinct approaches and that you can follow project management rubric to the letter and get nowhere because people aren't prepared to take the risk to move out. Could you just go on about that a bit more? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and I think the and I, but I think it also depends on the type of project. So, you know, if you're doing something that's going to take two or three years, and it's and it's sort of a it's painting by numbers in terms of project management, then it, it's probably more appropriate to a project manager to someone who's who's you know done it a few times before, probably isn't going to take a lot of risk. If you're doing something that is less um, explicit, less um, preordained in terms of what you've got to do. I think you then need to go into much more of a project leadership role, where you know if you don't take that risk and 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 drive things forward and fill that kind of void of of uncertainty, then I think that project runs the risk of failing because no one else will do that because no one knows what they're what they're supposed to do necessarily. Yeah, sure. No, that's a that's a it's an interesting uh, distinction, and I think you made it very well. Um, so your projects that you're engaged in at the moment are definitely more about leadership. So you had Anchura, your previous company that you set up and built, and now you've got your current one in a more sort of technical version of a similar sort of support to the financial services, big corporates. Um, how's leadership feature there? Yeah, I think I think it's been an evolution. So, so sort of from leading projects bigger and more sophisticated projects in in banks, to then setting up uh, Anchura ten years ago, that was like a project. If they felt like very similar things. What, what, what I'd what I lost when I left a big big organization and set up the, if you like, the project called Anchura, was you lost you lost all of the the the, the support the help. The, the warm embrace of the large organization in terms of um, IT support and, and money and all those things. Um, but what you gain is a freedom of action. You can you can chart your own course. You can you can take it in a direction that you want to. And and you kind of have to be comfortable with that with that risk as the you know as the kind of stage one of the rocket booster falls off. Um, but it is then about leadership. It's about having a um, an aim, where am I going to, and kind of being persistent and, and resilient about it. Interestingly, when I, when I was at Barclays, we did a study on, um, uh, on characteristics of successful entrepreneurs. And there was about 20 characteristics, and they asked about 500 very successful entrepreneurs, people who are on the Sunday Times rich list, what was the characteristic that, that most defined their success? And it had capital and ideas and um, uh, luck and all these things. And, and there was one answer that stood out from the rest that was um, 
and that and, and it surprised me at the time in the warm embrace of a large organization but that that characteristic was perseverance um, and within a year to a year and a half of setting up Anchura, I wholeheartedly agreed with that and I still agree with that that it's it's about that perseverance it's about knowing where you want to go um, but along the way there are many obstacles many things go wrong uh, and it's kind of how you deal with that how you stay uh, sort of broadly on course while you navigate around those things that go wrong and I uh, I think that's the kind of red thread that follows through my career from um, from the kind of military to project leadership to you know leadership of a company I mean being the CEO of a company in many respects is like being a project leader um, when you're trying to do something new and different. Paul you love a good book why do you think that that's helped in terms of shaping or honing your your craft in terms of leadership? Yeah, so I do. So I I I um, read far fewer books than I buy, um, <laughs> and I and I have a very active Blinkist, the book summary subscription. I, I like to when I when I don't know something, I like to explore it, and I and I actually use a multiple sources. I, I do read some books. I buy books. I I don't always have the time to read all of them in the detail I'd like to. So I read summaries, YouTube, and so on. But I think it's it's identifying those kind of gaps in knowledge and trying to fill them. And then, you know, I share that with the team. So I think some of them look at me in dread when I, uh, when five or six books arrive in the post um, and I start handing them out. In fact, in my, I'm in my office now and I don't have a stock stack of books, but, um, but they have included The Advantage by Patrick Lencioni. Um, they have included Surrounded by Idiots. Um, uh, and so, so I like to kind of plug those gaps to learn and kind of, you know, move on. I wish I wish I had more time, which probably is an excuse. I wish I had more patience to to, to read things about it. But it's it's you know it's learning, developing, putting things into practice. The um, the Amicus book at the moment is uh, the Black Box Thinking by Syed Peter. What's his name? Matthew Syed. Matthew Syed. Yeah, great. Okay, I haven't I haven't read that one. Well, that's uh, I'll have to go on the list. Yeah, it's based on um, you know, well, Peter, you can describe this better than me. Well, essentially, of- builds around the thesis of the black box in an aeroplane, yeah. which facilitates a growth mindset. So, the aviation industry has been extremely successful at um, learning from disasters and mistakes and risks that become events, and have refined that into such a mixture of art and science that. Um, the you know number of fatalities in the um, aviation world is tiny in comparison with the scale and complexity of the activity when you compare it with other walks of life where um, you know they're much more likely to be life-threatening incidents um, and you know Matthew alludes to a fixed mindset as the acceptance of well, stuff just happens, we've got to put up with it, as opposed to a growth mindset where we're trying to, you know, knock the ball out of the park all the time by um, continuous improvement on a very, very aggressive scale. And it seems to me that growth mindset sort of sums up uh, what you're up to, Paul. And, you know, I've always been impressed by the um, agility of your mind when it comes to confronting problems. And, you know, no doubt that's one of the things that gives you the confidence and the the drive, you know, 
there is a there's a sort of distinction between thought leadership and leadership clearly but you seem to bring the two together how important is it to have the good ideas if you're going to be a successful leader yeah and i think i think you've i mean you can it's great having ideas but ideas without execution are just um you know are just that they're just ideas and so it's kind of marrying the two and and but at the same time having those continuous ideas but also you know we we have lots of ideas from inside the organization so i think there's no there's no shortage of that but uh, but unless you can execute it, it it isn't um it isn't particularly relevant i think the black box thing is really interesting and i i will that will be on my uh, on my reading list there's a there's a similar book the um the checklist manifesto by atul gawande i don't know if you ever come across that and he he was a surgeon and and actually he studied the airline industry he studied construction as how do you bring complex pieces together and distill it down into um, making sure that you don't miss things along the way. So in big US hospitals, people were um, not getting the right results out of out of surgical operations, uh, but it was basic stuff that wasn't happening, not the kind of, you know, they they left the scissors inside the patient. It was the it was that the um, the antibiotic had been delivered too late because they had been delivered and then someone was waiting. So it's not about the expertise of the individuals. It's about when you bring a team together, unless the team knows who everyone is, knows what everyone's supposed to do and learns from that consistently. So the checklist was a way of bringing all that together. So the first item on the checklist was, does everyone know who everyone is and what everyone's job is? So in a big US hospital where you haven't worked with the same surgical team day in, day out, do you know what everyone's role is? And actually the checklist became the responsibility of the scrub nurse. Um, and it wasn't trying to get the surgeon's experience out to replace that. It was to make sure that nothing fell in the gaps. And I think that there's also analogies there with the ideas, which is you can have the ideas, but unless you go through the kind of steps to make that stuff happen, it um, you know they become things that are pie in the sky rather than a coherent plan. And I think that sort of rings bells with our military experience, doesn't it? From you know back in the day, um, you think of those those huge exercises we used to do on the North German plane in the Cold War, and you know we used to be encouraged as well to study you know great military minds like von Moltke, you know the author of the idea that no plan survives first contact with the enemy and all this sort of thing. And we learned very quickly that most plans didn't survive contact with our own side, which kind yeah. of picks up your hospital checklist analogy because yeah. these are big organizations and stuff just goes wrong and it's not because people aren't doing their jobs it's just the sort of you know the law of averages there's a mistakes are going to be made and those can get compound if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time and um you know occasionally you'll you know you'll bail out of your airplane on a on a parachute descent and find you're landing in the wrong place through no fault of your own those sorts of things those sorts of things can happen and i guess we we need to get used to having the humility about our own organisations as well as seeing things through the lens of blame and someone else made us do it and all that sort of stuff. I agree. And, and I, you know, I, I remember more about those exercises about what went wrong than I do about what went right. Um, and actually it was that it was expected that, you know, things went wrong and it was kind of, I think it was what you did about them and what you learned from it that was um you know, that was important. And I remember, you know, I remember lots of, you know, far more experienced people, you know, QMSIs and so on, 
where where if you if you said you didn't know how to do something or is there a better way, you'd get a very positive reaction. If you tried to bluff it or pretend it, you know, you hadn't made a mistake, you you would get the benefit of their wisdom with a loud voice very quickly. So Yeah. Yeah. Well that's a good lesson for all of us, I think. Because you know, there is a sort of there is a sense in modern life we're all trying to emulate perfection. And actually it's okay to detect problems and then rectify them, provided you do. Um, and and do that in a culture where um, blame isn't the most obvious facet of it, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you take people forward with confidence and trust. Jennifer, what's your thought on this one? Well, Paul, just picking up on the the challenges that you face. So you're an accomplished leader. You've been in leadership positions for a long time. You've got lots of experience and worked with lots of different people. But in terms of the challenges that you face as a leader, what what do you think the what are the biggest challenges that you've faced? So my well, so my biggest challenge now is is the pace at which we're changing and the the sort of growth tear that we're on means that um we we were having to reconfigure quite a lot and quite rapidly. So you know, generally, I think you know, twenty years ago in the dot com boom, people talked about an internet year being kind of three months rather than twelve months, and it kind of feels like that. So so you know, we it, we'll look and say, right, we've got a gap over here. We hire someone who's the best person we can find in the market to to do that, and we bring them on board, and we do that pretty rapidly. So that's the kind of easy bit. But then what happens is is that person then raises the bar on what you're doing and you realize that around you you've then got gaps you've got um you've got people who you really like who've been on the journey that are uh, that you're very loyal to who you realize aren't suited to that you know to a particular position anymore and it's not that you it's not it's not that you want to dispose of them or 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 they don't have a role but they need to change and that needs to happen quickly and so it's this you know that and those are things that in a large organization might take many months, years um, to, to, to happen and to kind of move around. And we're we're doing all that stuff at pace. So it's balancing the kind of competing needs of what you need to do for the business and the pace at which you need to execute um, to, to ensure that the new people, that you're hitting your objectives, the new people um, are getting what they need but that you're not leaving behind some of those people that are loyal, but they've, they've, they've outgrown where they are today and they need to be kind of shifted and moved around. And when you're doing that very rapidly uh, and doing that very regularly, that's, that's kind of tough. That's a, that's a, a muscle that, that, that I have not used to the degree that we're having to use it now um, before. So what takes primacy then when you're making decisions? If you find that, you, that you're loyal people that you've worked with, you've set up the business with, they've been um, unfailingly supportive of you, of the organization, you bring in some new people, it, it highlights some inadequacies in, inadequacies in those loyal people. And you find that no matter how much you try to upskill them and bring them on, they're struggling with that. What happens then? You know, which wins out? Is it the fact that you need to plug the skills gap or is it the loyalty of the individuals that are perhaps not quite cutting it? So, so therein lies the difficulty. But I think the answer is, is that you, uh, it, it's the mission. It's the where are we going? That's the, that's the bit that takes primacy. And then the, the challenge is how to, to manage those other elements with, with the right humanity 
um, to, to, to honor those, those kind of commitments, that loyalty. But actually, most people will know um, that, that they're, they're not keeping up. Um, at the time, but it, but it's doing it. It's doing that when you're moving at pace. That's difficult. So things that you um, don't intend to to perhaps come across if you're in the way that they perhaps do uh, when you're doing these things quickly. Um, you need to check yourself to make sure that it's kind of configured to the individual how they're feeling around it. Because in almost all of our cases, we want people to stick around. We want people to do something different to which they're better suited at. That may not look as uh, as organisationally attractive from a hierarchy perspective, but it's no but it's no less attractive. So it's because I think the flip side is is if you don't focus on where you're going and driving in that direction, then then it kind of becomes it becomes about the people. And then you're sub-optimizing for that. And then we and, and the choice that we made, we could have made that choice. We just didn't make that choice. And so I think shifting shifting that midway is is um it, you know is not a winning path. So which what do you prefer more? So going through the, the pace and the pressure of where you are now, where you're living a year every three months, or the kind of um, what you had with Antura before, which was a bit more stable, slightly slower paced than what you're describing now, or the world of the, the, the big corporate financial institutions that you talked about a warm embrace and just provided structure and, and perhaps allowed you to focus a bit more maybe on other aspects of your life. What, which, what fires you up the most? So, so it's it's definitely the the first of those, the the kind of moving at pace, the doing things quickly, the um, uh, that kind of execution piece, as, you know, as much as, you know, you know, particularly on a Friday night, I might wish for a, a sort of more stable and uh, and steady, uh, you know, working lifestyle. I, you know, I enjoy that. I enjoy the the kind of operating at pace, the kind of getting things done, um, the 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 creativity of of solving the problems that we need to solve. You know, at pace. I. Um, I certainly, I mean, certainly that's why I left large organisations was to find more of that, um, and you know, and Anchor was a gear change up. But I think that you know that started, you know, as we got to 60, 70 people, it started to feel a little bit more um, of that kind of stable piece. And and actually, I uh, you know, I really enjoy the, the 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 kind of cut and thrust of of solving those problems and making something happen. So just just sort of developing that um, thought for our listeners who might be contemplating a leadership role in the sort of pathway you're following, where essentially, you know, you've you've been through the sort of the foothills through most of your career, you're now deliberately going for to scale greater heights with higher risks, because that's what drives you. What are the sorts of leadership lessons or ideas or pointers? for um, sort of people who might want to be considering following your footsteps? So I think that you you need to work out, um, you know, whether you, and whether you can do this kind of explicitly or whether you do it kind of, you know, more intuitively is, is you know, what, you know how, do, how do you want to operate? So it's easy to kind of say where I want to kind of go. You can say I want to build something, I want an endpoint, but... But what do you want to do every day? What do you, you know, what does your working life look like? Is it something that is is kind of 
you know, calm, kind of considered, um, you sort of know what you're doing. Back to that kind of project management painting by numbers piece through to there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of problem solving, there's, you know, people bring you their problems to solve. And actually it's kind of almost when they stop bringing you the problems that that you've, you know, you, it, things aren't working. So I think you've got to look at what, you know, what is it I want to do every day? How do I, how do I operate? Because um, this, this type of, um, uh, leadership role can be deeply uncomfortable if you don't like doing lots of things changing, lots of moving parts, lots of things to kind of solve, resolve, and so on. It, it is it isn't a comfort zone thing for 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 those that like predictability. They like certainty, and so you've got to look at that. And the other thing is, I think that if you you've you've got to be focused on doing something you know a, a financial goal isn't enough i think you know if we sat here and said it's all about making a certain amount of money i think that runs out pretty quickly i think you've kind of got to have a purpose and a goal around what you're trying to achieve for which money is a score it, it, it you know it isn't it isn't the defining purpose that's great so every time you think you're approaching the sunlit uplands you make a plan to move off them as fast as possible. Yeah. That's what I'm taking away from there, which is great. Yeah. Um, so people who are listening to this might want to know more about ASIN. How do they do that? Well, they can come to uh, ASIN.com. And I actually, I did a, a podcast the other day. And uh, um, in addition to asking uh, what ASIN stood for, they said, how did you manage to get a four-letter .com uh, web address in 2018? And... Uh, and I don't know. We just we just did. It cost us uh, less than less than you would think, and uh, and we were you know great to have that. So yeah, websites there. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Anybody wants um, to, um, to 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 get the uh, you know any insights from me, feel free to connect, message me, and uh, the health warning comes with any advice I give. Of course, is uh, is entirely my own experience. Is probably entirely wrong for anyone that I give it to. So. Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today and uh, and listen to the really fascinating journey that you've had. Thank you very much. Well, no, thank you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Barry. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. All the best. Thanks for listening. We do hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can find each new episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss out. At Amicus, our bread and butter is helping leaders create consistent results by bringing out the best in their people. If you need support with anything we talked about on this episode, you can find out more about us at amicuslimited.com. This podcast has been done in conjunction with Inkblot Creative. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.